This podcast is brought to you by Pastor Stormy Swan and Faith Church from Lubbock, Texas. For more information, please visit our website at faithchurchlubbock.com. For coming and worshiping with us. Wasn't that an incredible time in the presence of God together? And thank you to all of our teams and ministry leaders that serve and volunteer at this place. This stuff doesn't happen without you, and we're so grateful that you're a part and that you give your time and your life to serve the kingdom of God here. Hey, in thinking about this place, you know, I like to think about our culture at Faith Church. And all of us know that Pastor Stormy has set a culture of sticking to the word of God, of living in the word of God and of preaching the word of God. He set a culture of prayer and and he is a man of prayer and we are a people of prayer at Faith Church. We're a people that serve and we give our time, we give our gifts, we give our talents to serve the kingdom of God and to serve the other people around us. And we're also a church that has a community and a culture of giving. Did you know that that when you tithe, when you give into Faith Church, at least 10% of everything we take in as a church first goes out to bless others and to help others. We give a tithe off of the tithe that comes into this place. And you all, as you give and as you tithe, you are taking part in the culture of the kingdom that is set in this place. And to all of the faithful givers, I wanna say thank you. You know that if you're giving tonight, you can do that on the website, you can do it by texting, you can use the gray cards in front of you, you know all that. But let me pray over you as a giver, okay? Lord God, I thank you so much that this is a place that we've all learned to obey you and to honor you in the area of tithes and offerings, in serving, in giving, in praying, in serving, and in in the word. Lord, we're just so grateful for this place that you've called us to be part of this body and part of your body at Faith Church, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you tonight. Uh, Thank you, Pastor Stormy and Shelly, both for the opportunity. And I believe, just like Pastor Shelly said, that the Lord has a word for you. And when I prepare to give a message, I always start by seeking the Lord and asking him, God, what do you wanna say to your people? I can get up here and say some fancy stuff and do some fancy things and do three cartwheels and you, whatever. But unless the spirit of God speaks to your spirit, then what we're doing here is no good. Because you need a word from God, not a word from me. And so my prayer tonight, and I believe that God has a word for you and that he knew who would be here and he knew what you would need and he knew your heart and he knew what you were wondering in your mind and he sent me here to tell you about running your race. And so I'm, I'm here to tell you that, that all of us have a specific calling. All of us and each of us are uniquely gifted. Each one of us, the Holy Spirit has imparted something on the inside of us that we are to steward or to manage and take care of and to use to further his kingdom. Each one of us is special. Each one of us is unique. The Bible says that we are his masterpiece that he formed us from the dust of the ground, that we were made in his image. And sometimes, because of life and because of what others have said about us maybe, we don't see ourselves as that way. We don't see ourselves as uniquely gifted. We don't see ourselves as specifically called. But I wanna show you that's exactly what you are. So turn in the Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to chapter nine. As you do that, with the gifting that God's put on your life, that comes with the responsibility. A responsibility to do the work that God has set out for you to do. 
And when you don't do the work that God set for you to do, then the kingdom suffers. Because all of us are co-laborers with Christ, the Bible says. So in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let's see how the Apostle Paul puts it. In verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners, everybody say all. All the runners run, but only one gets the prize, the gold medal, the trophy. Unless I, I, uh, when I was homeschooled back in the day, uh, we played uh, basketball, and it was in a program called Upwards Basketball, and they gave a trophy to everybody. The kingdom of God's not like that. You know, not everybody gets a trophy. It's celebrate me- mediocrity, that's what we used to call it. Okay, moving on. Verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it. When we're in the kingdom, we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave, I make it submit, I make my flesh submit to my spirit, so that after I preach to others, I myself might not be disqualified from the prize. So there's a way that you and I can be disqualified as those that are running a race to win a prize, the prize that God has called us to and blessed us with. See, track and field is, uh, I used to run track when I was in high school. I wasn't still homeschooled. I wasn't the only one on the team, okay? Uh, You may not know this. I don't know. uh, But track is actually a team sport. And many people view it as an individual sport. And yes, you get individual medals when you get first place in the whatever event. But it's also a team sport. And your team competes. And each of the runners that runs their race, they get a certain amount of points for first place, for second place, for third place. And those points are totaled up with all the runners on the team. And at the end of the track meet... There is a team that wins and a team that loses. You're part of a team, but you have your own race to run. And when you run your race and when you do it well and when you run your race to get the prize that's set before you, then your team wins. I want you to turn in the book of 1 Corinthians. You're right there in chapter 9. Turn over to chapter 12. And I've got three points for you tonight. I'm going to spend most time on the first point. And point number one is that you have to compete in your event. See, in a a track meet, there's all sorts of events. If you go to a cool school, you've got javelin. They didn't let me throw a javelin. You've got the shot put, you've got discus, you've got high jump, triple jump, long jump, you've got the 400 meter dash, 300 meter hurdles, you've got the 100 meter dash. I mean, there's all sorts of races and events that you compete in in a track meet. And the first point is that you would compete in your event. Here's what I mean. Imagine that you take a a state championship track team. Like these guys are the best of the best. They they always win. And you take them and you say, all right, if I'm your coach, listen, you guys have been doing so good. You've been training hard. You've been working hard in practice. You're putting the work in. I'm so proud of you. And, and I want you guys to have fun today. And so here's what we're going to do. At this really important track meet, all of you guys that have been training Just pick whatever event you want to compete in. Uh, We call you tiny because you're a 700 pounds, six foot nine. We want you to compete in the pole vault. You're going to do a great job. Have fun. Just have a great time. And little Sally, four foot ten, 
She usually flies over the, the bar with the, with the pole vault. We want you to do shot put. You're going to do a great job. You're going to do really good. Just do whatever you want. Have fun. Is that team still going to win with the same people? No. Because those people have been training in their events. And they're uniquely gifted to compete in their events. They've been practicing and training and preparing. And how silly would it be looking at a track team for them to just randomly shuffle and compete in whatever event they felt like that day? And yet we do that all the time. And we think, man, God, I I know that you have gifted me to build things with my hands. But that lawyer over there makes so much more money than I do. I'd rather be like him. Or maybe we say, man, that, that family... They're always getting to go on these amazing vacations. I sure wish I had what they had. Or maybe we say, you know, God, I I know that you've put a real heart in me to minister to children and to serve in the children's classes. But I see the worship team up here and everybody claps for them. Nobody claps for me in there, so I'd rather be up on stage. And the very event that we've been training for because we're gifted to do it, and we're equipped to do it, and we're called to do it, instead of competing in our event, we look at all the other events and think how much better it would be if we just did those. You know, Theodore Roosevelt said that comparison is the thief of joy. And I believe that wholeheartedly, that when you're constantly looking at everybody else and seeing how great they have it and how great they look and, and, and how they have so much more stuff than I have and whatever you, it is, then comparing yourself to them is going to steal your joy. And it's also gonna steal your purpose. Because then you're trying to live their purpose out instead of your own. And I believe that one of the most intense, joy-stealing comparison modes right now is social media. I mean, think about it. You spend all this time scrolling and scrolling and what are you doing in your heart, in your mind, what are you doing? Oh, wow, that birthday party they threw for their kid was really awesome. I just had two balloons and a cupcake. Man, I sure wish I could have had a birthday like that. And We scroll and we scroll and we see all the things that people are posting and we are comparing ourselves to them. And it's stealing your joy. And I want to challenge you. If you know your joy is being stolen because of comparison, get off social media. It's not going to kill you, I promise and your, your third aunt twice removed that lives out in Wisconsin, she's gonna be okay without you online for a little bit. I like to say it this way, like, you know, if you know me well enough to have my phone number, great. If not, eh, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Don't let comparison steal your joy. I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians. We're gonna be in chapter 12, and we're gonna start in verse 12. I'm gonna read several verses here. Second, or 1 Corinthians 12, 12. It says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all, everybody say all. Y'all love it when I do that to you. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, whatever you look like, whoever you are, When you become in Christ, you're part of the body. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. 
And as we go through this, notice how many times Paul says, okay, the body's not one part, it's actually many parts, and it forms one body. He says it over and over and over, and I think it's to get it through our thick skulls sometimes. We're not all the same. We're not all supposed to be the same. If we were all the same, this thing wouldn't work. We need each other, and we need you, and you need me to stay in my lane, to compete in my event, to do what God's called me to do, so that we all can work together to form the body of Christ. In verse 15, it says, now if the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, if it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? And I think verse 18 is going to be the key in all of this. It says, but in fact, God has placed the parts of, in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And we go back to the beginning. Who are the parts of the body? You and me. We are the parts of the body. And it says, God himself put each one of us exactly where he wanted us to be. And so for us to look at somebody else competing in some other event and say, man, I wish I was doing that instead, is almost like a slap in God's face because you are the exact way that he wanted you to be. You were knit together in your mother's womb. You are God's masterpiece. And when you compare yourselves to others and wish you were like someone else, you're saying to God, you didn't create me good enough and I wish I was different. But you are his masterpiece. He put you where he, wanted, where he wanted to put you. In verse 19, we're gonna keep going. It says, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. You see, he keeps saying that. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker, they're indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. Don't ever let anybody tell you that they don't need you, that you're not good enough, that you're not worthy, because that's not what Jesus says about you. In verse 24, it says, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. It's like that track team. When you do your part, when you compete in your event, when you train hard and when you do well, your team rejoices with you because they succeed with you. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. It's almost like he's saying, hey, in case you didn't get it already, with the body we're talking about, that's you guys. You are part of the body. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles... Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? 
now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And I used to think, okay, what does that mean for me to eagerly desire the greater gifts? Like, which one's the greatest one? Tell me that, and I'll desire that one. But you know what the Lord showed me today? You want to eagerly desire the greater gift? Desire the one he gave you. He, he gave each of us a gift. And he gave us the gift that he wanted to give us. That's what it said. And so if I'm going to desire the greatest gift, it's the one that was intended for me. Don't desire somebody else's gift. You desire the one that God gave you, and you do the best you can with that. Turn over to the book of Exodus, all the way, second book of the Bible. We're going to be in chapter 4. So I started looking at, like this was just amusing to me, what I said earlier about you know, competing in whichever random event you wanted. And so I was looking up like Olympic record holders and I found out that the Olympic, or the world record holder of men's shot put is actually an American and his name is Ryan Krauser. So we've actually got a picture of Ryan right here. That's what I'm talking about. Ryan Krauser is six foot seven, he's 320 pounds and the world record that he set throwing shot put is 76 feet, eight and a quarter inches. He set that last year. Now, a shot put is like about this big. It's made of, I, I believe, iron or brass, one of the two, and it weighs 16 pounds. You may think, 16 pounds, like I got a kid that weighs at least seven times that much, and I carry them all the time. Okay, so a gallon of milk weighs eight pounds. So here's what I want you to do. You're gonna go to the grocery store. You're gonna buy two gallons of milk, you're gonna strap them together, use duct tape, it'll work just fine. And then you're gonna to go to your local middle school. You're gonna stand at the 25 yard line and you're gonna let, let me know how it goes, you putting those two gallons of milk on your shoulder and heaving them into the end zone. That's essentially what Ryan does. And he's incredible at it. Actually, he's the best in the world. And so then I was looking up, well, I wonder about pole vaulters. I used to pole vault in high school and I didn't get very high, but it was fun. And until I hurt myself. And so then I looked up uh, and found Sandy Morris. And this is Sandy, not the same size as Ryan Krauser. Sandy is five foot eight, she's 132 pounds, and she is the United States best pole vaulter. She doesn't have the world record, but in 2022, she did jump higher than anybody else in pole vault. She got 16 feet, three inches over the bar, which that's great. If you want to know how high that is in your house, the ceiling's probably eight feet, and then just another whole room on top of that. She got over that. Pretty impressive. And I think if Ryan Krauser were to grab the pole vaulting pole and he's like, I'm going to do this instead, and he takes off running and he jams that pole into the ground and starts leaning back, you can imagine what's probably going to happen. I don't think those poles were designed for that. And same thing if Sandy grabs that 16-pound shot put and she's carrying it like this, she's like, yeah, I can definitely throw this 76 feet, no problem. It's just a picture. Each of us has a unique and special gift. We were created. They were created differently. God gifted them differently, and for them to try to do what the other is doing is foolish. So look at the book of Exodus, chapter four. I'm just gonna read two verses. This is when Moses comes before God, and God is in the burning bush, and he's speaking to Moses. Remember, Moses had fled Egypt, because he had murdered an Egyptian. And he ran away and he began to be a shepherd in, in his father-in-law's sheep, he was watching them. And one day he sees the, the bush and it's on fire, but it's not burning up. And so Moses approaches and the God begins to speak to Moses from the burning bush. And then he says, Moses, 
I'm gonna use you. You're the one that's gonna go back to Egypt and tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. They've been slaves for 400 years and I pick you, you're gonna go. And Moses was like, no, I'm not. He said, God, I stutter. There's no, if I go to the king and start stuttering, he's gonna think I'm an idiot and he's, not, he's gonna say, God didn't even send you. And remember, God got upset with Moses and he said, no, I've chosen you. And here's what happens next in chapter four, verse one. Moses answered, he's talking to God. He says, God, what if, what if they do not believe me? What if they don't listen to me? And they say, the Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? And I believe in that moment, Moses looked at his hand and he had his shepherd's staff and he, a stick? What's that gonna do? And then you remember the story, God tells him, throw it on the ground. And he throws it on the ground and it becomes a serpent. And that staff, the one that was in Moses' hand, is the one that God used to initiate the 10 plagues, the judgment on Pharaoh. And then that staff is the one that God used to part the Red Sea and allow the Israelites to cross. And that staff is the one that God used in Moses' hand to strike the rock and water came out for them to drink. That's the staff that God used in Moses' hand that when he raised his staff, the Israelites would win their battle, but as soon as his arms got weak and he lowered it, they would begin to lose. And so Aaron and Hur had to hold up Moses' arms with that staff in his hand. And what if Moses would have said, listen, God, I've been trying to tell you, I'm out. I've got a stick. You probably want a guy with a sword or a scepter, something else that's gonna be a lot better than this stick. God didn't need his people to be ruled like a king, though. God was their king. God needed somebody to lead them, like a shepherd leads the sheep. And he chose Moses, and he used what was in Moses' hands. And Moses had, he wrestled with it, but he had to stay in his lane. He had to compete in his event and do what God had called him to do. When we get to the end of our lives, we won't be judged on how well we lived somebody else's life. We'll be judged on how well we lived ours. So point number one is that you've gotta compete in your event, stay in your lane. Point number two, finish strong. Turn to the book of Philippians chapter three. So once you've committed, you know what? I'm gonna stay in my lane. I'm gonna do what God's called me to do. This is, this is where I'm gonna be. You still have work to do. Because if you commit to be a pole vaulter, now you've gotta to commit to be the very best pole vaulter that you can be. And if you commit to be a sprinter, then you've gotta be the very best sprinter that you can be. Philippians chapter three, we're gonna start in verse 12. And Paul says, not that I've already obtained all this. He's talking about the pursuit of his life, to know God. Is that I haven't already attained it or have already achieved, arrived at my goal. So Paul says, I'm, I'm not there, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He's saying, that thing that God called me to do, I press on to achieve it. I'm gonna work hard, I'm gonna run my race. I'm gonna do what God's called me to do because that's why he's called me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You can't change the past and I can't change the past. Whatever it is that God's called me to do, I haven't been that great at it sometimes. 
I've looked to do things that other people are called to do instead at times. I haven't worked hard at my calling at times, but you know what? I can't change that. But what I can do is forget what happened back here and I can press on towards the goal. I can get back in the, in the sprinter's blocks. I can get back in my lane. I can get up when I've fallen down and I can keep running my race. I was gonna show you a video, but for time's sake, I'm gonna tell you the story instead. We heard this story at, at a pastor's conference we were at this past week. In the 1968 Mexico Olympics, there was a man who ran the marathon from Tanzania, and his name was John Stephen Aquari. And John Stephen Aquari, when he got to Mexico City, he wasn't used to the altitude there, and so while he was running the marathon, his legs began to cramp. And as his legs cramped, he stumbled and he fell and he dislocated his knee and he injured his shoulder. In the middle of the race, the other runners passed him by. So what he did was he wrapped his knee up and he stood up. And he couldn't really run anymore, but he began walking those grueling rest of the miles that were left. And they would ask him, why don't you just stop? And he would keep running. They would say, you, you've got no chance to win anymore. And he kept moving. Some people didn't even finish that race. There were, I believe, 19 competitors that year that never finished the Olympic marathon. 56 men crossed the finish line, one after the other. They're going into the stadium. People are cheering for them as they cross. And they didn't know that John Stephen was still back there, walking as fast as he could, continuing to press on. So they have the medal ceremony, they award first, second, third place, people begin to leave the stadiums, and then they get word that there's still one runner out there. It's actually getting dark at this time. And then an hour and five minutes after the first runner crossed, they look and John Stephen Aquari comes into the stadium hobbling in, and he crosses the finish line. And they asked him, why did you keep running? You clearly were out of the competition. Why did you keep going? And he said this, my country didn't send me here to start a race. My country sent me 5,000 miles so that I could finish a race, and I'm gonna finish it. And you know what? You and I have been sent not just to start a race, you and I have been sent to finish a race. So whatever God's called you to do, finish strong. Work hard. Stay connected to God. Stay connected to the Holy Spirit and finish strong. So we gotta compete in our event, stay in our lane. We gotta finish strong. And last I wanna talk to you about is that we have to pass the baton. And you know, in a relay race, a runner starts to run, and he's got the baton in his hand. And then he gets close to the, to the next runner on the team, and for a time, they run together. And then there's this moment where the first runner passes the baton to the second runner. The first runner stays there, and the second runner continues on. And you know, the team doesn't win. Even if, if, if the last person crosses the finish line, the team doesn't win unless, or they don't finish unless that baton crosses. If the baton gets dropped, they're disqualified. You have to pass the baton, and this is talking about the next generation. 
And the best story about this, I believe, in the Bible is in the book of 2 Kings chapter 8. I'm going to go there really quickly. This is the story of Elijah and Elisha. And for a time they were together, and Elijah was teaching Elisha and mentoring him and walking with him. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 8. And it says, Elijah took his cloak, he rolled it up, and he struck the water. This is on the Jordan River with it. The water divided to the right and the left, and the two of them crossed on dry ground. It's like a miniature Red Sea miracle. He takes his cloak, he rolls it up, he strikes the water, and the water parts. It's a miracle. Verse 9. When they had crossed, Elijah, the mentor, said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? And Elisha said, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, or let me inherit a double portion of your anointing. Elijah replies, he says, you've asked a difficult thing. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two men, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and he tore it in two. He mourned the fact that his mentor wouldn't be there with him anymore. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak, he picked up the baton that had fallen from him, and he went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and he struck the water with it. You know what I think happened in that moment? Nothing. Because look what happens next. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. He's basically saying, I, I was promised a double portion anointing if I saw you, him be taken. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and the left, and he crossed over. You know what's really cool? There's recorded of Elijah eight miracles in the Bible. You know how many are recorded that Elisha did? 16, a double portion. Elijah taught Elisha and mentored him and trained him and showed him how to hear the voice of God. And there was this moment when he passed the baton and Elisha went on to do greater things. And that's you and me. We have to compete in our own event and we have to finish strong because there's a generation after us that needs us to pass the baton to them. They don't need us to sit they don't need us to drop it. They don't need us to be disqualified. They need us to allow them to stand on our shoulders and achieve greater things than we did. Our children, our grandchildren, and even those ones that, like if you serve with kids in the kids' ministry, that's a way you can pass the baton. You don't have to have kids to have a legacy. My grandmother passed away recently, I think last month. And my grandmother lived a lifestyle that was very selfish. A little while before she passed away, she was at my parents' house, and a lot of us were over there. Her children, her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren. We were all together, and, and we were asking her questions and talking to her, and she asked my dad to bring her her jewelry box. And so he brought her the jewelry box and she opens it up and she begins looking at all of her jewelry, all of her rings. She began remembering 
who gave her the rings and the story behind each piece of jewelry. And she sat there for a long time and totally ignored all the people in the room, totally ignored all the family that was there and stayed focused on these things. And mom took her to, to get her hair cut one day. From the, she went and got her from the nursing home and she took her and my mom was trying to tell her a story about one of her great-granddaughters. And she said, hey, Charlie was doing this and this at school and it was really cool. And my grandmother looked at her and said, I'd really just like to think about my hair right now. And when she died, that I know of, nobody cried. I remember checking on my dad and I said, Dad, are you okay? I don't know what to think. And he said, I'm not really mourning the loss of my mom because a long time ago, I mourned the life that she chose to live. And she chose to live a life only for herself. And so she didn't even have a funeral because nobody would have come. And that's no legacy to leave. My mom, on the other hand, (laughs) my mom's the most selfless person I know. She lives her life for other people. She spends her time, her energy, her money, her resources, everything she has, she spends them for other people. My wife and my sister-in-law kind of concerned about school lunches this year and how they were going to like take care of all of that and get it for the kids and pack it and whatever and there's like I don't know 10 or 12 kids or something that every single week she makes their school lunches for them she doesn't have any kids at home anymore she doesn't have to do that my mom's already told us that at her funeral she wants us to sing um, joy to the world I'm like what if you don't die at Christmas she's like just do it anyway okay yes ma'am I hope that day doesn't come for a while, but I know that at my mom's funeral, whatever building it's in is gonna be packed. Because she chose to pour into people her whole life. And that's the legacy I wanna leave. That I would stay in my lane and do whatever it is that God's called me to do. That I would finish strong, that I would work hard, that I would do the work that God set before me to do. And then that I would be able to pass the baton on to my children and my grandchildren and the other people that God places in my life to minister to. So would you just stand up on your feet with us for just a second? I know we're past time and I'm gonna get you out of here. But if any of those areas are you, and you would say, I haven't, competed in my own event. I've wanted to compete in every other event besides the one that God gave me to do. I haven't been working hard. I'm not going to finish strong at this pace. Or I'm, I, I don't think I've started a good legacy yet, and I want to start today getting ready to pass the baton. If, if any of those are you, would you just lift up your hands, and I'm going to pray for you. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word and for your strength and for your power. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you guide us and that you empower us to live the life that you've called us to live. And so, Lord, right now, we repent. We repent for trying to live somebody else's life. 
We repent for trying to, to compete in somebody else's events. We repent for comparing ourselves to others and letting that steal our joy. God, we repent for not working hard. We repent for not being on track to finish strong. Help us not to grow weak or weary. Help us to wait on you and let you strengthen us, God. And we repent if we're not on track to pass the baton and to let those after us, the next generations, know you and love you and serve you and live for you, all those most important things in our lives. Lord, I pray a special touch on all my brothers and sisters in this place tonight that you would help us Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you once again for joining us on this podcast. To check out more services from Faith Church, you can find our live broadcast on YouTube or check out our website at faithchurchlubbock.com for more information on upcoming events, how to give, and how you can get involved.